Man, songs like that, I just feel like dancing. <laughs> I have a hard time keeping still. I'm kind of doing some of this, you know. I know at my size, when I start moving around like that, I'm blocking the screen here. But <laughs> So it's Mother's Day today. It's a special day that we, uh, we set aside to salute our moms and honor them. Uh, for Bonnie and me, this Mother's Day comes just four days after our 38th anniversary. So this week is extra special. Bonnie calls this week, take me out for a nice dinner and gift-giving season. So <laughs> Mother's Day always presents a dilemma for pastors. You know, we want the message to be encouraging and upbeat and helpful. We also recognize that this is not always a happy Sunday for everyone. And uh, we don't want to rub salt in old wounds. And we don't want to ignore your life experience. But at the same time, we want to affirm the role of mothers in our lives. They have a huge influence on us. You know, and uh, some of them have shown great courage in being part of raising us. Some have had incredible dedication and special love. We pastors also work really hard to try to avoid cliches. Uh, I can feel vibes crumbing from some of you, like, uh, Pastor, if you preach from Proverbs 31 one more time, I'm going to stuff your sermon in your ear in a peaceful Christian Anabaptist sort of way. Nobody has ever actually said that to me, but I can feel it. I can feel it. By the way, the Proverbs 31 woman, she isn't a real woman. I just want you to know that. She's a proverb. And so she is a collection of all the things that could be, you know, special and wonderful and nice and, and great qualities of a woman. And they're all put together in what we call a composite. They're all put together in one single person, the Proverbs 31 woman, or the wife of noble character. And uh, there's an interesting thing that you might know. You know, sometimes I've looked at the passage and go, how could one person ever do all that stuff? And then I noticed something when I was looking at it again this week, and that is that, that one reference says she manages her household well. Well, that is uh, sort of Hebrew code for she has a staff. And then a little later it says she has female servants who work in the house. So, so here's a little hint that if your husband ever has the audacity to say to you, I want you to be more like the Proverbs 31 woman, what I want you to do is look at him right in the eye and say, sure, dear, just as soon as you hire me a household staff. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> So we're not going to talk about that woman today, just saying. Uh, instead, we want to do a little storytelling about two women who may have passed by when you were reading your Bible, somebody that you may know, but you may not remember a whole lot about them, two women who lived very significant lives, enough so so that their, their uh, stories are recorded in Scripture to be remembered for all time and known by all of us. So today we're looking at a woman named Jochebed. And she was the mother of Moses. And we're also looking at Naomi, who was the mother-in-law of Ruth. Two women of great significance. By the way, I, I looked up the word mother in the Greek and the Hebrew. And you're going to be surprised at what it means. It means mother. 
Isn't that cool? It's always so helpful to look at the original languages. So let's look at Jochebed. She's uh, found in Exodus chapter 2 and verses 1 through 10. If you know the story of Joseph, then you know that uh, when he was governing Egypt, um, his family, uh, he was working on behalf of Pharaoh and his father, Jacob, and his brothers, they all moved with their families to Egypt because... um, that would save them from the famine, but also so that they could be reunited with their brother. And the Israelites in Egypt thrived, and they multiplied, and Egypt practically was filled with Hebrews. You couldn't go anywhere without meeting a Hebrew on the street. And at least a generation later, when Joseph and all his brothers had died, a new king came to power. And he did not know what Joseph had done, or at least he did not recognize it. And he had forgotten all that the Jews had done for them. All he knew was that there were too many Israelites. And he considered them a threat because there were so many. It was like, what if a war starts? What if they all turn against us? You know, we can't stand. And so he decided to to oppress them, and he began to treat them as slaves and force them into labor. And to keep the population under control, it says at the end of Exodus chapter 1 that he gave an order that every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile River. That's how he's dealing with the growth. So that's where Jochebed's story starts. And here's what it says. It says... Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So we have a father and a mother who are Levites of the priestly class. We we don't really get to know their names here. We we find out a little later on that they're Amran and Jochebed, or Jochebed, and... uh, We find that out in Exodus 6 and Numbers 26, so it's quite a bit later when we find out more about them. But Jochebed's name means one thing. It means the glory of God. Or Yahweh is glory. In scriptures, we often understand that a person's name tells us something about their character and about their lives and how they worship God. And it might suggest here that she had not only great faith in God, but that she was a a strong believer in such a way that she reflected the glory of God. So she was Yahweh's glory or God's glory. Now, I think we're going to see some of that faith in a moment here. I want you to imagine something. This is a a difficult scenario for us to understand. But imagine if at the very birth of your child, you had to hide him or her. Imagine what that would be like how afraid you would be for their lives. All the babies in Israel were being killed. And no matter how much or how well you hid your baby, I I think Jochebed knew that it was only a matter of time before they were discovered as the soldiers went searching and probably went house to house. And so she comes up with a bit of a plan. Scripture tells us, But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. 
sometimes as parents we have some very, very hard choices. And sometimes we have to let go of what and who we love the most in order to save them. This baby's mom loved this child so much, but she realized that if she kept him, eventually the soldiers would find him and they would kill him, probably sooner than later. And so with, with great courage, she gave him up. She gave him up. This is a, a major step of faith. You can hardly imagine it. It must have broken her heart to put that baby in that basket and set it afloat in the reeds along the Nile River. Maybe that's why it's not her, but her daughter Miriam who stands and watches over the basket because maybe for mom it was just way too painful. But God had a plan for that child. And Jochebed was placing her baby into God's hands. How often do we place our children into God's hands? How often? Have you ever had to do that? Every day, right? Every single day. It's our job to help them grow up to become as independent as they can. And we do our best to teach them how to make good decisions in life and, and take values on that we hope will stick. But we can't protect them every moment of their lives, and it, sometimes we have to let them go, and they move away, or they move to another city, or they go to another part of the world. Sometimes they travel. Sometimes they serve and live in dangerous places and have to do dangerous things. As parents, we love them and let them go, but not completely, <laughs> not completely, right? We pray over them. We're still there in the wings to love and support and encourage them and be cheerleaders. But at some point, even if we're blessing them out the door on the way to school in the morning or on the way to a friend's place to play, we place them into God's hands and we trust that he knows what he's doing even when we don't understand, even when we don't understand. Thankfully, very few of us will ever have to let go in the way that Jochebed did in this story when she floated Moses out on the Nile. So as the story goes, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe. She has her whole entourage with her, and they're walking along the shores, and she spots this little reed basket floating in the water and sends her servants in there to get it. When they bring it ashore and they open it up, they find a crying baby. And she instantly recognizes it's a Hebrew baby. Now Miriam, the baby's sister, was very quick to react to the situation and, and pretty smart. She, she said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse this baby for you? And the woman said yes, and so guess what? She went and got her mom, Jochebed, and she ended up taking care of her own son on behalf of the Egyptian royal family. And now he was protected from death. So Jochebed got her baby back, at least for as long as he was nursing, and the baby was saved from death. Brilliant. Brilliant. This part of the story ends with a postscript. Here's what it says. 
When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. We all know what happened next. He grew up, he became the prince of Egypt, he got his own DreamWorks animated movie, he moved to Beverly Hills, and at one point he's played by Charlton Heston. How much bigger than that can you get? Well, that's not really what happened, is it? Moses went on to do great things. He became one of the strongest leaders of Israel. And with his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam beside him, they led the Hebrews out of captivity to freedom. Moses is the one who parted the Red Sea in God's power to help the, the Hebrews escape. Moses led them into the desert when they were complaining and would not follow God directly. And he walked with them through 40 years. And he's credited with bringing them right up to the gates of the promised land. He's credited with writing the first five books of the Bible. And when you look at his great life, it's easy to forget his mom. But all this happened because the mother took a huge step of faith and let her child go to save his life. She launched him out on the waters of the Nile. And God used Moses in amazing ways, thanks to this woman of faith and courage. A woman who took a significant risk to save her child's life. So you may not realize this, but Moses' parents are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, you'll find it talks very briefly, not by name, but it says that Moses' parents were credited with great faith because they hid him and saved him. And of course, he became what he was in God's plan. The second woman I want to look at this morning is maybe a little more well-known than Jochebed. This is Naomi, and she's the mother-in-law of Ruth found in the book of Ruth. Ruth is a wonderful book. It's a great book to sit and read through. There are so many values and lessons and things that you find in there. So much about relationship and about God's provision. Today, I just want to focus on Naomi's part of the story, or mostly on Naomi's part of the story. Naomi lived during the time of the judges. She and her husband, Elimelech, they lived in Bethlehem with their two sons, Malon and Kilon. And when a famine hit Judea, they had to move to find some food. And so they ended up settling in the region of Moab. Now, we don't know what happened, but... Ruth chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us that Naomi's husband dies, and she's left a single mom with two sons. And when they grow up, they marry Moabite women. Now, that sounds, you know, is that outside of the law? Well, no, not really. The Moabites, um, they were descendants of Lot, who was a nephew of Abraham. And so it would be okay for them to marry the Moabite women, even though Moabites were not well-liked, they were not well-accepted. I suspect it was maybe a little bit like the Samaritan situation, where there was a lot of tension. They were distantly related, but they were still considered foreigners. Well, at some point, another tragedy happens, and Naomi's two sons, they also die. And now we have all three women left as widows. Widow's life was pretty hard. 
According to the Biblical Archaeology Society, they had a little article about this the other day, and, and they said the problem was much more than the obvious thing of being left alone. There was a great reduced income with the death of your husband. A woman in this period of time, in this patriarchal society and system, could not earn anything close to what a man could, and so their earnings would be meager. And after the death of her husband, Naomi's best hope for security would be her sons, who were obligated to care for her. But both her sons died. And widows were very poor, so much so that in the book of Acts, we read about the beginning of the whole office of deacons, which has started to care for a certain group of widows who were not necessarily getting their fair share of the food distribution. You know, and a widow in those days could become destitute. And some might even have died of starvation. That's what happened to widows. So in the beginning of the book of Ruth, we have these women in a dilemma. They don't have any means to support themselves, but they find out that back home, things have become better when they, than when it was when they left more than 10 years before. And Naomi still has a little piece of land that belonged to her late husband. And so there's another possibility there. Here's what it says. It says, When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. What a journey. They set out. They start down the road, and as they're going down the road, Naomi is starting to have a lot of different thoughts. This is all really beginning to work on her, and, and she decides that I better send these women home. There's no point in them going back to Judah with her. There's no more sons there waiting for them as brides. They would do so much better if they went back to their own people, if they went back to their their own families, and they would be able to find somebody, a husband of the right age, of their age, and, and they would be able to have happy and, and safe and secure lives. Ruth also becomes convinced that God has somehow turned against her. And, and there's a suggestion in his conversation with his, her two daughters-in-law that she's worried that her bad luck, her, her bad fate might spill over onto them. She says, no, my daughters, like they want to stay. And she says, no, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. <laughs> you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like God is against you? You ever feel like God is taking things away from you? You ever feel like he's, he's just not going to settle until you have nothing? That may not be what's happening, but that's often what it feels like. Our uh, tape starts playing in our mind over and over and over again. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. He doesn't care what happens to me. You know, I think this is going on in Naomi's head. You know, but these, these daughters-in-law, they still wanted to go with her. And there were a whole lot of tears going on. And finally, Orpah decides to go back to her family and go home. And after they say goodbye, Ruth is still clinging on to Naomi. She's still hanging on to her mother-in-law. And, 
And it's here that Ruth speaks some of the most famous and beautiful words in Scripture that you probably know and you may have sung. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back to, from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. You get that they were close, right? I mean, really close. Ruth will go with her mother-in-law even to death. Now, let me ask you another serious question. What kind of woman must Naomi be in order to receive this kind of reaction from Ruth? Do you hear what I'm saying? What kind of woman would she be in order to get this kind of loyalty from someone? I mean, was she a cruel woman? Not very likely. Is this how you react to cruel people in your life? Was she nasty? Was she hateful? Doesn't seem so, does it? Her name is a clue for us. Naomi means pleasantness. Pleasantness. In fact, as we go on, it seems that Ruth was more like a daughter to Naomi than a daughter-in-law. And she's intensely loyal to her mother-in-law. Now, mother-in-laws often get the raw end of the deal. You know, they're the brunt of every joke. I hope you're listening, Mom, this morning. Bonnie's mom watches us every Sunday, so hi. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Butter tarts would be good. Cherry pie is great. <laughs> Mother-in-laws often get the brunt of the joke, um, but Naomi doesn't deserve that. She's a woman of noble character, and these women love her, especially Ruth. So Ruth journeys back to a home that really isn't her home. So when they arrive in Bethlehem, it says the whole town recognized Naomi that she was back, and it says the whole town was stirred. And they were greeting her, and they couldn't believe that she was back, and obviously she was very well liked there. But along the life in her journey, she had become bitter. And she told the people that she, said, she met, she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. I think Naomi's reaction is very understandable. I mean, she's had a lot of loss in her life. She's had a lot of suffering. She's had a lot of grief. To her, as we said, it must seem as if God had just taken everything away from her. I wonder if you've had those feelings too. Did you ever feel like you were insignificant? Did you ever feel that you didn't matter to God? When we go through difficult times or terrible experiences, it's very easy to think these things. And, and you know, once bitterness gets a hold of us, it begins to pull us down. It's a very difficult thing to let go of. It becomes almost addictive. We get caught in a cycle of negativity and often some sinful thinking. And, 
And it's all because of the hurt we're experiencing, the way we feel. But I want to encourage you with this, and that is that, that just because it feels that way doesn't really mean that God has forgotten you or that he's acting against you. And it does not mean that you are not significant to him. Please remember that. So when Naomi and Ruth went back to Bethlehem, they arrived just as the barley harvest was getting started, and they didn't have much. You know, they had this little piece of land, but they didn't have much. Likely they had to live off the kindness of others right from the beginning. But there's a law in Leviticus, in Leviticus 19, the law of gleaning. And it provides for people like that. And so during a harvest, the poor or anybody who doesn't have any property, they could walk behind the harvesters and they could pick up and take any grain that fell on the ground. And also, there would be margins at the side of the field that were by law kept open so that only the poor could harvest there. The more generous the landlord, the more wealthy the landlord, the wider the margins at the side of the field because he didn't really need all of that grain. And so this law was in place in Bethlehem and they went out, Ruth went out to uh, get some food for them. And she walked behind them and she picked up grain that fell. You know, they believed very strongly that God himself owned the land. And therefore, they believed that everyone who lived deserved to have a living and to live. So sometimes they'd harvest their vineyards just once and then leave all the grapes that grew after that for the people who came behind them to pick for free. It was that kind of a provision that God made for his people. So Naomi went to the harvest, and she gleaned along the edges and behind the harvesters, and she gathered food to eat, and even on her lunch break, she was provided for. She meets up with this group, and, and Boaz kind of says, who's that woman? Who's that woman who's been following us along today? I think he kind of had a fancy for her, and, and they finds out that She's the daughter of Naomi, and that she is really watching out and caring for Naomi, and she's really a woman of noble character. And so Boaz is, is kind of, I think he's smitten from the beginning, but as you go along, he gives her an extra helping of food, he gives her extra food to take home, and then tells all the workers, hey, as you're harvesting this afternoon, just drop a little bit more behind, you know, so that she can get it. And she goes home, and she's got armloads of food, and she has grain, and she tells her mother-in-law his name is Boaz. She goes, Boaz? But that's one of my relatives. That, he's a kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer was a very special thing. He was a family guardian of sorts who was responsible for redeeming or helping or restoring someone to, to a good life again if they were going through serious difficulty. That was another obligation written into the law. And so Naomi begins to think, and she begins to have her daughter-in-law go to just the right place at just the right time. And she kind of manipulates the situation a little bit, but she does so with great wisdom. And along the way, of course, 
Ruth and Boaz get together. And Ruth ends up marrying Boaz. And the land was purchased. And Naomi's name was restored. In fact, it would be still connected with that land because here's what happened. Interestingly, Ruth and Boaz had a child named Obed. And, and Ruth raised Obed as if he was her own son so that the family name would not die out. That's pretty cool. So everybody's provided for. They have enough food to eat. They have their lives restored. The status is restored. They have security. This woman had been in great bitterness, remember. But now joy has come into her life. Here's the postscript to this story. Obed grew up to be the father of Jesse, who became the father of David, and right on down the line to Jesus, who was their descendant. The kindness and the wisdom of this mother-in-law led to the loyalty of a daughter-in-law that led to the redemption and the creation of the line of David and Jesus. That's God. That's God moving where we don't always see him, but he's there moving. And he's always in their lives. Ruth is one of only five women who's mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. It was not common to put a woman's name into a genealogy, only the patriarchs. But in five separate places, we can't talk about all of them this morning, but Ruth is one of those women who's in that list. So I want to take you back to the beginning slide. And the title of the sermon is Two Significant Women. Did you notice that there were three people sitting there? There are three women there. So I want you to tell me which of these women is not significant? Which of these women is not important? Which are the significant ones if we turn it around the other way? Is the two on the outside? Two on the right side? The two on the left side? Which of these women is significant? You know it's a trick question, right? All of them are significant. Everyone's story counts. You are significant regardless of your performance, regardless of what you do, regardless of what you have, regardless of what you've lost, regardless of whether or not anybody even knows your name, because God knows your name. And he knows your innermost hurts, and he knows your desires, just as he knew what was happening with Jochebed, and just as he knew what was happening with Naomi and her daughters-in-law, God knew what was going on. And God knows you. You are significant to God. He knows your hurts. He knows your struggles. He knows your joys. The father knows what it's like to lose a son and ultimately gain him back eternally. And through Jesus the son, we gain our ultimate significance. Believe in Jesus. Receive Jesus. Believe in the resurrection. Believe that he died for you on a cross for your sins and that they could be forgiven because of that. Believe that he was raised on the third day 
something we just celebrated at Easter, raised as that promise of eternal life. And he was also raised, and he also lived, and he also died so that you could live life significantly, fully, to the most that you personally can live. And God will guide you there. Life may seem difficult right now. It might seem impossible right now. You might feel pretty bitter over something that's occurred. You might feel desperate, like you don't have any choices. That's when we need to lean on God. And lean on God's people. And God will guide us because he loves you so much. And he cares what's going to happen to you. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for the two women in the stories and for all women without whom your story would never be told. And I thank you today for our mothers and the wives of our children without whom there is no human race. Bring your blessing on them today. Build them up in your love. Reveal yourself to them in a very powerful way today through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.